Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We obviously are well suited to provide content with our expertise, and yet how do we create a sense of connection and community? And not just through programming, but how do we do that in the galleries and how we present our collections? That's Stephanie Stiebisch, the Margaret and Terry Stent Director of the Smithsonian American Art Museum and its Renwick Gallery since 2017. Before coming to Washington, D.C., she served as executive director of the Tacoma Art Museum for a dozen years, making major acquisitions, staging significant exhibitions, growing its endowment, and overseeing a renovation that doubled its exhibition space. She was previously assistant director of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts from 2001 to 2004, and assistant director at the Cleveland Museum of Art from 1995 to 2001. She was a trustee of the Association of Art Museum Directors, where she led and implemented its diversity initiative as chair of the membership committee. She currently serves as a trustee of the American Alliance of Museums and is a member of the executive committee. She has a BA from Columbia University and a master's degree with a concentration in modern art from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. She was a fellow at the Guggenheim Museum and has studied at the University College London. In May 2018, she was named co-chair of the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to join you today, Max. Glad to have you here. And the Smithsonian has obviously gone through a lot in the last bit of time with the pandemic. What's going on? What's new with a couple of new museums, right? Yes, very exciting news. December of 2020, Congress authorized, that doesn't mean funded, <laughs> but they set forth the mandate for us to create two new museums. I call them the twins that are being added to the family of 19 museums that are in the Smithsonian family. So we are planning already for an American Latino Museum and a Smithsonian American Women's History Museum. We think it'll be about a 10-year process. So we're starting with finding a location, always a fraught question, where to put a new museum on the mall in a historic building, a new building all on its own putting a board together, of course, and then also finding really visionary leadership. So that's what we're doing in the short term on those two new museums joining the family. That's very exciting. I assume the architectural competition is going to be a big, exciting feature of that. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, if we use the National Museum of African American History and Culture as our guide, that was about a 10-year, a little, little bit more than a 10-year process. And yes, architecture will be a key component to consider what the identity would be for what will be 21st century museums. And when you started as director at the American Art Museum, it was the fifth most visited art museum in the U.S. and the second most visited in D.C. And like the Guggenheim, a large proportion of your visitors are tourists. So I'm wondering how that factors into your thinking about how you program the museum. Interesting fact, actually 51% of our visitors are repeat visitors. So that mm -hmm. tells me, Max, we're a favorite museum for what we call the DMV audience. <laughs> That's the District, Maryland, and Virginia. And so to your point about tourists, uh, we also think that these tourists are coming at the recommendation of, uh, of locals, which we really appreciate. So one of the things we do differently, I would say, than other museums, both ones that have a strong local base and even ones that attract large tourist audiences, is we present our exhibitions for a much longer period of time. And I have to say, I love that. We're not on that gerbil wheel uh, turnover of special exhibitions every three to four months, but we really have exhibitions up for 
six, nine, even 12 months stretches. And so we see people return again and again, and it allows us to have deeper and richer programming and sometimes even more press coverage uh, Mm -hmm. for the beginning, middle, and end of an exhibition. And I imagine post-COVID, a lot of museums will be doing that simply to save money because exhibition costs are significant and there is very little proof of return on investment from doing special exhibitions, really, isn't there? Yes, yes. I don't even know how we in the museum field got onto a three or four month turnover. It really is very hard on everybody. Uh, As you know, uh, special exhibitions are one of the most expensive areas of the operation after staff. And when you make such a big investment to bring all these incredible works of art to your home museum, you really want to enjoy them as much as possible and find a way to be a good colleague and do the same thing. Lend your artwork for perhaps a longer period of time than you're used to. Yeah, my guess is that lenders are not eager to see their works gone for that long. So to squeeze three museums in a tour, you can only do three months with putting it up, taking it down. So you end up with a year and three museums. But that's an old way of looking at things. I think today people have to open up their horizons to imagine further change. Yes. Again, who's to say that these exhibitions need to have so many venues? You know, Maybe if you had them up longer in two locations, you could make an effort to go to one of the two locations as well. The cost sharing of having more museums has made it more palatable and two museums would make it more expensive per institution. So there are a lot of forms of calculation to this, but I think part of what we're saying is that the exhibition frontier is a bit unknown going forward. The pandemic caused us to do some innovative things that where you just want to hit your head and said, why didn't I think of that earlier? We've rethought uh, the couriers. You know, what can we do virtually that we used to really insist we had to do in person? Now, not all of these pandemic creative hacks work for everything in the museum operation, but a lot of things can be employed that I think will make us a little bit more efficient in how we operate. Do you think visitors will be looking for something different as the pandemic subsides? I think both something different and also something familiar. So you may remember there was a very important study done by LaPlaca Cohen, a a great marketing and branding consulting firm, and they really asked audiences, what did they need during the pandemic from these institutions? I call them the four C's. It was to have a sense of community, a sense of connection. They were clearly interested in content. And my favorite is a little comedy. I think we need a little levity. And those were important things to uh, see us through the pandemic and keep us connected to those arts institutions that feed our souls and reflect our values. And those are good guidelines as well. You know, one should make museum experiences somewhat fun and surprising. We obviously are well suited to provide content with our expertise. And yet, how do we create a sense of connection and community? And not just through programming, but how do we do that in the galleries and how we present our collections? Yeah, those are appealing. I think the issue that's been troubling me is how much a lot of museums are heading towards fleeting experiences that are Instagrammable. And that's a much different world from what you're describing. We saw through the pandemic that people were forced to slow down. And yet I think people also go to museums to slow down. So how can we invite people to both slow down to really enjoy what we're presenting, these unique encounters with works of art. And yet, how can we make some of the labels or the didactics or some of the information we share something that causes to look further and to look at different works of art than you would have normally too? As you know, we're also a different moment in America. And so museums, I think, need to step into this breach to help people 
who are struggling to understand America in a post-George Floyd moment, understand ourselves and others differently. And I think it's a unique moment that we at the Smithsonian certainly want to embrace. As our secretary mandates, we are looking to have greater reach, greater impact, and greater relevance in all that we do and offer at the Smithsonian Museums. And what do you and Secretary Bunch have to say about the lasting effects of the social justice movement of the past year and a half on the museum, on the Smithsonian? Yeah, I would, I would say that when I joined the Smithsonian four years ago, I was really impressed as to what the Smithsonian was already doing to represent America in its great diversity. And we think about diversity in terms of the people that we bring on board, the, the leadership at the Smithsonian has never been more diverse. Uh, not only our boards and our staffs, and even working hard to have our volunteers reflect all of the great diversity of our nation. The collecting efforts have been significantly focused on representing people who come through the door. Do they feel at home? Do they see their culture, their history represented? I would tell you, it's an amazing thing from the inside of the Smithsonian about how we create change. So we see change. You know, there's a there's the old carrot or stick. So the Smithsonian has set up a couple of centers, the Smithsonian Latino Center, the Asian Pacific American Center, the American Women's History Initiative, which I co-chair. And we create pool funds, which says, why don't you hire a curator who has a specialty in Latinx art? We can give you funding for that. Do you want to do more programming featuring the history of women artists, scientists, historians? We can give you some funding for that. Those are the kinds of things that uh, museum directors respond to well, because making change does cost some time and energy and certainly uh, funds. And uh, I'm impressed by the, uh, how the Smithsonian does it. And, and they look equally to make sure that, that all the units across history, science, and culture are participating in, with all of these centers. Stephanie, we struggled with it at the Whitney, and I'm sure they still do. How do you arrive at the conclusion that an artist is American? In other words, what are the criteria you use in considering who to include in your program and collections? Yes, that's a terrific uh, question. Uh, you know, what, what artist uh, is, is defined as American? Sure, we use the born, lived, worked, studied in America. However, we have a, an extra little nuance. Our, our mission at the Smithsonian American Art Museum is to celebrate the extraordinary creativity uh, of artists whose works reflect the American experience and global connections. And so that allows us to take a look at an artist like Rufino Tamayo, great Mexican artist, has his own uh, dedicated museum in Mexico City. And we, we recognize that he spent significant amount of his, of his life in New York. We just did an exhibition about that in 2017. Most people may not know that Rufino Tamayo uh, taught Helen Frankenthaler uh, when she was a student at Dalton. And we bought a terrific gouache uh, named Carnival from 1936, which talks about Coney Island. So these are American themes. Uh, it is an American experience uh, that is captured. And we can include foreign artists who have an impact on American art and artists. So we have a bit of a nuanced uh, definition of American. The pandemic also reminds us that we have to be always thinking about our local audiences. Yes, we want to do special exhibitions. Yes, we want to um, participate in national and international efforts. And yet at the end of the day, the people most likely to cross our thresholds are the people in our area. And what more can we do to invite them to come, uh, whether it's uh, pandemic tourism of 200 miles or so radius, and we live uh, on the eastern seaboard, so we have a, a large catchment basis, 
And yet our mission also is national. We are the flagship museum of American art. And so uh, you may know, obviously, of Alice Walton's Art Bridges Project. This Saturday, we are opening an exhibition in Boise, Idaho, uh, created with four other museums in the, in the Northwest. These are things that we should be doing, sharing our, uh, our collections and even working with museums that may have more of a regional focus, may say, really, what we can do best is to focus on the art and artists of a particular part of the country. And with our national collections, we can offer a little bit bigger context. And, and when we bring all these collections together, we can tell a story that none of us could tell by themselves. And speaking of national, I think it's this year that you're rolling off the board of the American Alliance of Museums as trustee, right, after several years of service. What are some of AAM's expectations as the museum field is seeking new relevance after this crazy last year and a half? Indeed. Well, I'm proud of the work that the American Alliance of Museums has done this past pandemic year, particularly being a place for museum professionals to convene virtually with the, through virtual conferences, as well as really be a, a place that offers incredible resources. One of the things I thought they were effective in was really making the case for how much museums were suffering during the pandemic. We heard about different industries, certainly the hospitality industry that got hit hard, but a lot of people would overlook what was happening down the street at their museums or historic sites and such. And so the kind of advocacy work really went into overdrive, uh, much more coverage of the needs of museums during the pandemic. And so uh, helping people with advocacy work at uh, the state capitol or the national capitol, I think, continues to be a priority for AAM. Uh, Certainly work in diversity, inclusion, uh, accessibility, and equity, both on the board leadership level and on what steps that museums can take in terms of their own policies and practices. And then uh, an area of interest for me is always financial sustainability. What are new models out there for partnerships, for uh, generating revenue? Uh, as as uh, a colleague once said, how do you monetize your mission? <laughs> what is it mm-hmm. that you do uniquely that you can appropriately put a, a price tag on that supports the operations. As a federal employee, you have to be careful not to step into the realm that AAM does. How do you manage that balance, Stephanie? We don't lobby at the Smithsonian. We have certainly relationships with government uh, officials. We have our own board of regents, which has a very unusual mix of people you may not know, but the chief justice of the Supreme Court is the chair of our board of regents. Uh, The vice president serves as a regent of uh, the Smithsonian. And so currently this president, President Biden, happens to have spent eight years as a regent for the Smithsonian. So we like to think that would be helpful in him understanding where the Smithsonian can be helpful in serving our nation and also helping with some of the difficult conversations ahead as we think about shining greater light on uh, overlooked populations and achievements that really haven't been fully appreciated or recognized. Things uh, about serving the rural parts of our country uh, versus uh, our our major cities. So uh, we uh, stay out of the political fray. We are very bipartisan, and we also have representation from uh, both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Stephanie, you're, of course, therefore, as you say, an apolitical institution. But have there been any changes of note at the Smithsonian with the change of administration this past January? With a president who served as a regent, 
uh, of the Smithsonian for eight years when he uh, was vice president, there's a greater understanding of, of where the Smithsonian uh, can play a role. So uh, e- even in the um, founding of uh, two new museums, that's really a breakthrough in recognizing the uh, achievements and the contributions of uh, American women, uh, as well as the, the Latino population in the United States, making a commitment to better represent those stories in our national museums, in our national capital. I think that's a change for sure. Some of our listeners may know of your collection, but they may not know you have 2,000 works by more than 200 African-American artists in the collection, which is one of the largest such collections anywhere. How do you make use of this part of the collection and what are your plans for it in the future? Yes, we have extraordinary holdings of African-American art. Uh, some of it is uh, thanks to really in-depth holdings of figures like William H. Johnson, an extraordinary figure who uh, lived an international life. And so we have two upcoming exhibitions that might surprise people. One of his most famous series, Fighters for Freedom, where he very much followed what was going on in the news, what were the uh, actions of civil rights leaders, of national leaders, and uh, we have his extraordinary scrapbooks in my sister institution, the Archives of American Art. So he, he composed these terrific imaginary scenes of these uh, leaders coming together. And in that series will go on the road nationally. And then we're also working with our Scandinavian colleagues on a moment that is often overlooked in his history, which is he lived in Denmark for many years married a Danish woman, lived in a small fishing town, and was a critical period for him also for moving from a little bit more abstraction to realism. And that's an exhibition we're planning uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, So we have over a thousand works by William H. Johnson. And again, our mandate is, is to share those to get those out. We also have deep holdings of Alma Thomas, a very important DC figure, originally from the South, but made her home in Washington as an arts teacher, uh, a mentor to many artists. And we are uh, both lending our uh, works to some major shows that are traveling nationally, and then also putting a, um, a display together of some of her wonderful late abstract paintings that, that will be up in the galleries uh, in the next two years. So we have much to share. Of, of course, you know, we have deep folk and self-taught art collections and uh, just got a terrific gift of a work by Potter Dave. So we have some plans to reinstall our galleries to um, tell a deeper story of the uh, influence on uh, black Southern artists and on uh, and, and showcasing our deep holdings like with Alma Thomas. Pre-pandemic, it was customary to plan exhibitions with a three- to four-year window. Where are you now in thinking about how far ahead your programming and planning, and what's going on in general with museums in planning exhibitions given the pandemic? Well, I would tell you our exhibition uh, schedule is a little bit different than other museums i found in, in, in wonderful ways. One, we have a deep commitment to scholarship. So yes, we do do exhibitions that take six or seven years in terms of production, because there's a lot of research required. We're working on a major show exploring race and American sculpture. Uh, This will have a significant catalog, and we think we'll really break ground in the field of American sculpture that really hasn't looked at uh, the construction of race and and the choice of materials and maybe uh, patinas and bronzes, as as well as the use of white marble. So that's a project we're really invested in for for 2025. 
Uh, we, we do short-term exhibitions, uh, ones that we put together from our deep holdings and that we share nationally. They may go to 10 or 12 other museums, and we love that. We think that's important. Uh, and then also what uh, you may not be thinking about or other museum directors aren't thinking about as intensely as we are is we're focused on the year 2026. That is the 250th anniversary of our country. And what is it that we at the American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. need to do to uh, do something to advance our field, provide more information and share the joy of American art with school children across the country? What more can we do with uh, teacher training so that American art is used not just in the art classes, which sadly there are fewer of, but in social studies and English uh, for critical thinking skills? And then what major exhibitions can we launch? And also what works of art can we commission that would be a, a, an addition to the story of American art? So we're thinking, uh, continue to think far out into the future uh, in terms of planning purposes. You've had enormous experiences. I mentioned at Minneapolis and Cleveland, Tacoma. Can you help our listeners understand how a person like yourself goes from one museum to another? What kind of changes do you have to make intellectually, emotionally, in connection to mission? How do you learn about a new museum when you start there? Uh, well, I would say that if you think about the arc of my career, uh, there was a bit of a pattern. I, I worked at museums that had the name of the city. Uh, in the title, Minneapolis Institute of Art, uh, Tacoma Art Museum. So very much a museum that uh, was also a, a civic booster. It was tied to the identity of the institution. Coming to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, I, every morning I ask myself, how are we both a local institution and national? What does it mean to be in a family of Smithsonian museums? I, as you uh, noted earlier, I run two museums, actually, the American Art Museum and the old patent office and the Renwick Gallery, a, a gem of a building, a block from the White House, um, a much loved by, uh, uh, by the millennial uh, generation and such. So even running two museums uh, requires a bit of a stretch and how to both connect them and, and create separate identities. One of uh, the secrets I've had in my career, and I try to share it, is I take a significant amount of time off <laughs> between jobs. I take two to three months off between jobs. Uh, I'm a good squirrel so that I can uh, afford, uh, afford my rent and a move. And so it gives me time to say fond farewells to a community that I really always fall in love with. I, I have a soft spot for every place I've lived. And then also prepare myself, getting my library card in my new community, my driver's license, reading, uh, introducing myself to people quietly, and, uh, and being fresh, being fresh to really learn and take in. Uh, every museum has an incredibly dedicated staff, and the more you can listen to them and their good ideas and their observations, uh, the better off uh, you are. And they want to change, too. They know a new leader brings in a new opportunity uh, both for themselves and for the institutions and, and what we can do. And so I always ask uh, all the staff, what are, what are five things we do really, really well we don't want to lose? And what are five things where we think we can do something differently? Uh, where have we not um, risen to our expectations in some part of the operation? And I go back to those notes uh, time and time again and, and check myself uh, mm -hmm. if we've made any progress on those topics. But it's a great privilege to live in different parts of the country. And it's part of what makes America so special. It's this nomadic uh, quality. I, I'm German by birth, as you know. And in, mm -hmm. and in Germany, you're really from a place. Uh, this is changing, of course. My cousins have 
have uh, studied in different uh, cities, let alone countries. But you're really like, where is your family from is a question. And, and that's a very different feeling in America. You've made a lot of impact in the D.C. area, and I'm curious about the Loose Local Artist series. How does that work, and what are the outcomes of it? Uh, well, we have wonderful spaces in our building that is two city blocks long. Again, it was the old patent office. It was the third federal building built. It was uh, designed to be fireproof and house these magical things, which were little working models of new inventions in America. Uh, it is at the heart of the American economic boom is the creativity and, and new designs that, um, that, that pop up uh, uh, every day. Uh, part of the American dream is to create something new and to improve something. So if you had to move into a, a, a historic building with a previous purpose, not a bad place for an American art museum to be mm-hmm. in, a, uh, in an old patent office building. And yet we have different spaces given the, the nature of the building. And, and one little tucked away space up on the third floor is the Luce Foundation Center for American Art, which is really two uh, floors uh, high with kind of an open atrium space. And we have open storage. You can just wander endlessly and see you know, thousands and thousands of works of art. It's also our commitment to making our collections visible, uh, more than the 3% or so that most museums have on view. And in that open space, it's a great space to have yoga classes, evening programming. We're the, um, the exception in the Smithsonian family. We're open till seven o'clock at night, unlike my other colleagues who close at five or 5.30. And so that allows us to be more engaged into, in, into city life, into people going out and wanting to do something before they go to dinner or have uh, drinks in a beautiful space. So we invite local artists to come perform. We get great, uh, a great turnout. They have their local uh, fans and it's a place to to come and 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 learn about music in the community that you may not be aware of without having to go to a, a smoky subterranean spot. It's it's a really open and lively space, and we sit in the uh, Penn Quarter, uh, a wonderful spot for other cultural institutions and lots of lots of great restaurants. So it's our contribution to uh, the energy of the city by having this loose local music series. Stephanie, the Association of Art Museum Directors, which you and I have long been involved in, has been at the center of controversy this past year over relaxing penalties for deaccessioning objects in ways that are at variance with longstanding policies. As a federal institution, do you look at deaccessioning practices differently from other AMD museums? Uh, yes, uh, our bylaws uh, are are different than uh, some of my sister museums as well. Uh, the Smithsonian American Art Museum actually predates the founding of the Smithsonian. We, we were the original national uh, gallery, uh, and then we shifted our focus primarily to American art. And so uh, should we want to uh, deaccession artwork from our collection, we would first have to offer it within the Smithsonian family so that it bl- still belongs to the uh, American population, however, in uh, shown in a different institution where there is a better fit. So for example, oddly enough, I have some Asian artworks that came in in an earlier gift, and some things have been transferred to my sister institution, the National Museum of Asian art, uh, renaming of, of the Freer-Sackler, so to speak. And uh, one of the things that you know we really focus on is making sure that what we bring into the collection 
really has meaning and will continue to have meaning uh, into the future. I think, Max, you and I are on the same page. I believe deaccessioning is the symptom of a larger disease, which is financial instability uh, and uh, often some uh, mismanagement uh, along the way. And uh, I, I, uh, it hurts my heart when these things leave communities where they have a, um, uh, an important role to play for you know, generations of, um, of citizens who, who grew up with these works just accessible down, uh, down the street for them. And, and, mm-hmm. and now they are uh, dislocated. I'm not a, a proponent of deaccessioning. Uh, for the purposes of, of raising funds to, to operate the institution. I think there is, of course, um, careful culling, and there are good reasons to deaccession. If uh, you, know, you find yourself with artworks that really are in, in a condition you cannot show them, if, the, if it's really now proven that it is not what it was when you purchased it, uh, or if you are moving in a very different direction in terms of your collection building. Those are the solid scholarly uh, approved and uh, frankly rational reasons to deaccession, uh, but but not what's happening sadly in our field. Well, Stephanie, I'm sure some of our listeners' appetites are now whetted to visit you. What are the protocols and, and new schedule of the museum? Well, I would say we're not exactly back to our full schedule. We are one of the few museums that's open seven days a week, uh, only closed on Christmas. However, uh, with the pandemic and rejiggering our uh, staffing, we're open now five days a week. So we are closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. We have our regular hours, which are 1130 to 7. And, um, you know, stay tuned with the uh, you know changing health situation. We will be moving back to... Uh, requiring our visitors to wear masks in the galleries. However, that is um, about to be announced. So this may be something that you should check in on before you go. But uh, on the website are all the details about arriving at the museum. And and it should still be that wonderful experience you remembered uh, even before the pandemic. And your favorite works of art are still there. And we hope you'll discover some new artworks as well when you're there with uh, family and friends. Excited to come back and see you, Stephanie. Thank you for making time to be on Artscoping today. My pleasure, Max. Thank you for your insightful questions and asking what's new at this uh, unique moment in the history of our country and in the life of art museums. We've been speaking today with Stephanie Stiebisch, the Margaret and Terry Stent Director of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.